Our Old Testament reading today is from Job, chapter 1, verses 1 through 22. And this is found on pages 528 and 529 of your Red Pew Bibles. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people in the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my son, my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. When he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven, and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job rose 
and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked came I from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Thank you, Chris. What a powerful story. Well, happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. A little boy was recently asked, tell me the difference between Mother's Day and Father's Day. And the little boy said, well, Father's Day is a lot like Mother's Day, but it's a lot cheaper. (laughs) The National Retail Federation estimates that U.S. consumers will spend $23.6 billion on Mother's Day, but only $14 billion on Father's Day. We just have to get a a box of golf balls, I guess, or whatever for Father's Day. Don't need the flowers, don't need the candy, although I like candy if you want to send that my way. I I, I really don't care, though, what the uh, retailing uh, experts have to say. Every father and grandfather here today is very, very important. Did you know that 90% of all homeless and runaway children in our country today come from fatherless homes? There's a fatherless problem in our country. Fathers are very important. As men in the church, we are called to help uh, single moms raise their children in the faith. For every time that a baby is baptized, we, the entire body of Christ, commit that we will help that family raise their child in the faith so that one day, with their own lips, they might profess that Jesus Christ alone is Lord, as many children did at Vacation Bible School just last week. It's amazing to see how God moves when all of us get involved in helping raise the children in their faith. In fact, one of our core values is intergenerational ministry. The idea is that all of us will help pour into the next generation so that they might grow and walk in the ways of the Lord, that we might listen to them, that we might encourage them, that we might pray for them together. Ideally, every child in our church can think of at least five adults other than their parents in our church who are committed to them and who've been helping them grow in their faith, whether it be a volunteer with a Sunday school class or someone with a youth group or just anyone who's walking alongside them, encouraging them in the Lord. This idea of helping raise others in the faith as a father is actually found in the Apostle Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 11 to 12, Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica and says, For you, knew, you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Yes, 1 Thessalonians is a beautiful word of encouragement, a letter of encouragement to a church who has recently faced great affliction. So that we might be encouraged from those words today, so that we might hear from the Apostle Paul what God would have us do, I would encourage you to turn in your Red Pew Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, beginning with verse 17. It may be found on page 1256 as we continue our journey this summer through First and Second Thessalonians. But before I read and continue to read God's word, let's call upon his spirit again to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as he pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the relationship that the Apostle Paul had with the church in Thessalonica. That even though he was with them 
just a series of weeks, Lord, you were able to use that relationship. You were able to open the hearts of the Thessalonians to receive your gospel and to build a church that lasts. Oh God, we pray that as we listen to your word this morning, that as we hear from you, that you might speak to us, that our hearts might be open and we might be transformed and we might live as more obedient servants to you each and every day. We pray, O oh Lord, that the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts might be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name, we pray and all God's people said, amen. First Thessalonians chapter two, beginning with verse 17, listen to the word of the Lord. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we, went, we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live. If you're standing fast in the Lord, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Here ends the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't tend to spend a lot of time talking or thinking about Satan. When was the last time you blamed Satan for any of your troubles? Reminds me of the story of the pastor's wife who uh, decided to buy an expensive dress at the consternation of her pastor husband. 
You see, he was an associate pastor on a beginning salary, and he was really struggling to make ends meet each month. And when his wife came home with a dress that cost $500, he asked her, how could you spend this much money on a dress? And the wife explained, well, you know, I was just standing outside the store window, and I, I heard this voice speak to me and say, it doesn't cost anything to try it on, does it? Wouldn't you look beautiful in that dress? It's as if Satan was in my ear telling me just to try it on. I would look beautiful in that dress just to look and see how I might look. Well, the husband said, well, you know what I do in those situations? I command Satan. I say, Satan, get behind me. The woman said, but I tried that. And then Satan told me it looked great from back there as well. (laughs) Have you ever blamed Satan for your troubles? Most of us living in the 21st century don't spend a lot of time thinking about Satan, at least not here in America. But if we read the scriptures, in fact, if we just read the New Testament, we'll see that Satan, the Greek word for Satan or the Greek word for the devil, both of those words are mentioned 73 different times in the New Testament. So as biblical Christians, it's difficult for us to ignore the existence of Satan or the devil. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll see that before Jesus begins his ministry, he spends 40 days in the wilderness fasting and praying, and then Satan comes to tempt Jesus. In the Gospel of John, chapter 8, Jesus says that, well, that the devil is the, he's, he's a murderer and he's the father of all lies. The Greek word for devil, diabolos, can be also translated as adversary. The devil is the great adversary of God. He is the leader of the fallen angels who have rebelled against God. Satan always tries to thwart the work of God's kingdom. As John Calvin, the father of the Presbyterian church, explains in his commentary on 1 Thessalonians, he writes, when our endeavors are directed to the work of the Lord, it is certain that everything that hinders proceeds from Satan. And would to God that this Sentiment were deeply impressed upon the minds of all pious persons that Satan is continually contriving by every means in what way he may hinder or obstruct the edification of the church. Calvin was very aware during his time of Satan's work to try and hinder the growth of the church. We in the 21st century here in the United States where the church overall is shrinking in its influence We ignore Satan at our own peril. But the Apostle Paul goes on to to write to the church in Ephesus. uh, In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 12, Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. My brothers and sisters, when radical Muslims or radical Buddhists or communist governments try to destroy the church overseas, it is Satan who is tempting them, who is trying to destroy the work of God's church. When the Apostle Paul did the work of the Lord, planting churches, preaching the gospel, making disciples, he knew that he was in a spiritual battle with Satan. The devil was going to try and stop in whatever ways he could. 
He knew that working for the Lord was going to lead to affliction. That's why he writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 2 to 4 that I read just a moment ago. He says, We sent Timothy and our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. When we are doing the Lord's work, the devil is going to try and stop us. My oldest daughter, Hannah, found this out firsthand when she went on her first mission trip several years ago to Honduras. We were in Honduras to help finish out a preschool, a Christian preschool, in a village that had none. After a morning of work, we decided to take a break for lunch, and this little village is right on the coast, and so we had decided to have lunch on the beach there. And as we were eating lunch, some of the younger children decided that they wanted to go swimming in the ocean, which looked fine. But unfortunately for my daughter Hannah, she jumped into the middle of a school of jellyfish. was stung all over her legs. She came running out of the ocean, screaming, crying, and I didn't know what to do. But thanks be to God, there were these little Honduran children who knew exactly what to do. They got some limes from some bushes, and they cut the limes and started to put the lime juice on her legs to help ease the burn of the pain. Well, after Hannah had healed up and we had all comforted her, we decided to go back to work. And Hannah noticed that there were some leftover food items. And so she decided to give those food items to some of the Honduran children. As she was looking down at these packages of of, uh, wafers that she was going to give to these kids, she was walking by a window where we had recently hung a brand new shutter. And we hadn't yet fully secured it. And then a big wind comes blowing and that shutter is blowing right into her face, slamming her nose. She starts to bleed profusely. She cut her nose like right under here. It was horrible. We're like, oh no, now we've got to give you stitches. And so I had to take her to this medical clinic in Honduras, which was not fun or clean. And (laughs) she had to get a really long shot with the needle to numb her nose to get stitches on her nose. It was not an easy day for my daughter, Hannah. I was certain she would never want to go on a mission trip again. At the end of the day, though, As we were debriefing, Hannah decided to give up, stand up and give a testimony as different people would uh, each day. She said, you know, today was a a rough day for me. I got bit by a school of jellyfish. I was hit in the face by a shutter and I had to get stitches on my nose. You know, when you're doing the Lord's work, the devil's going to try and stop you, but you got to keep pressing on. (laughs) Hannah was nine when she said that. Out of the mouth of babes, God has ordained praise. When you're doing the Lord's work, the devil's going to try and stop you. But you've got to keep pressing on. Fortunately, as the Apostle John tells us in his first epistle, he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Through faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit now resides within each one of our hearts so that we do not have to fear Satan, but we shouldn't ignore him either. There's a spiritual battle raging, and as followers of Jesus, we are now in that battle, whether we want to be or not. And it's only through using the sword, as Paul explains in Ephesians, the word of God, and through constant prayer that we will be able to overcome the attacks and the afflictions of Satan. When bad things happen, what do we do? Do we instinctively turn to our own abilities to solve that problem? Or do we turn to the promises of God's word and to prayer 
to seek strength so that we might overcome the afflictions that are coming. How do we initially respond to affliction? Of course, many people wonder why the people of God should experience any affliction at all. Why would an omnipotent, almighty, all-powerful God allow bad things to happen to good people in the first place? Wouldn't it be better if God only allowed good things to happen to good people? Then everybody would want to be good, right? People would think, well, gosh, if I'm good, then only good things are going to happen to me. Why doesn't God set it up that way? Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? As we look at the circumstances of the Apostle Paul and the Thessalonians, who are experiencing a lot of affliction because of their faith in Jesus, or as we look at the familiar story of Job that Pris just read just a moment ago, we are faced with that difficult question of why God allows Satan to afflict people who are faithful. For instance, in the story of Job that Pris read just a moment ago, God is clearly in control throughout the story. For in the very beginning, God sets the parameters on how much Satan can initially torment Job. God tells Satan, you know, you can take his stuff, but don't harm Job. That's what he says initially. God then allows Satan to use the Sabaeans to steal Job's oxen and donkeys and to kill Job's servants by the sword. Then God allows Satan to send fire from heaven to burn up the sheep and Job's servants watching them. God then allows Satan to have the Chaldeans steal Job's camels and have more of his servants killed by the sword. As if things couldn't get any worse, then God allows Satan to send this powerful wind that ultimately kills all ten of Job's children when the house that they're in falls in on itself because of the great wind. Why does God allow Satan to torment Job so much? Have you ever felt like Job, like nothing was going your way? A few weeks ago, I had to replace a toilet that I was trying to fix, but then I broke it. Uh, (laughs) Better for me not to try at all, I guess. And then I learned that I also had to replace a hot water heater and some plumbing wasn't correct. And $2,000 later, we had fixed all our problems. But then the very next day, the alternator on my wife's car goes out and we had to replace it and the battery of my wife's car. Then we learned that we also had to replace a wheel axle and a stabilizer on one of my wife's wheels. And then I, the very next day, had to replace a tire on one of my cars. I kept thinking, when is this going to stop? I was feeling like Joe. But some of us have had even more severe experiences. One of my good friends from college a few years ago lost his job, and the very same week, his wife filed for a divorce. Sometimes we were overwhelmed by the challenges of this life. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people. Of course, the truth of Scripture, the truth of its life, as Will pointed out just a moment ago, none of us are really all that good, are we? We're all sinners. We are all rebellious in the very core of who we are. Yes, it's true that in Genesis 1, we read that when God created humanity, he said it was very good. We were created in the very image of God. And yes, we were very good. But then beginning with our first parents who succumbed to the temptation of Satan, that serpent of old, sin came into the world 
And all of creation was corrupted with that original sin. Death and disease became a very real reality of this world. And we have now inherited a a selfish, sinful nature that left our own is prone to wander from God. It is prone to stray from God. In Romans 3, as Will pointed out just a moment ago, we read that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us are really that good. If anything good ever happens to us, it is simply a gift of God's grace. We don't deserve it. We simply receive it as the gift that it is. Yes, we don't deserve God's grace, but he gives it to us anyway. But still, in the grand economy of God, wouldn't it make a little more sense if God allowed only good things to happen to people who try to at least obey him? God and his sovereign power could prevent bad things from happening to us who are trying to obey him. Why does God allow bad things to happen to people who are trying to do his will? Well, as I look at all of scripture, I can see that there are at least three reasons. There may be more. Why God allows bad things to happen to his people. For God uses affliction to strengthen our faith, to shape our character, and ultimately to grow his church. You see, before Job is afflicted by Satan, there's little evidence that the faith of Job has ever really been tested. It's true that Job was worshiping God regularly, offering sacrifices for his children in the case they had sinned against God. He seemed to be a very faithful person. But Job's faith is not really tested until he is afflicted by Satan, until he ultimately loses everything. With all of his material possessions gone, Job has to dig deep. Once his children have died, he has to dig deep and decide what it is he really believes. For ultimately, all that Job has left is his relationship with God. Even his wife seems to turn on him when she tells him that, well, that he should curse God, uh, curse God and die. His friends later in the story, as you know, come around him, but then they begin to blame Job and say, God must be punishing you for, for some kind of sin, Job, that you have. You need to repent from your sin and then God will, will stop punishing you. Job is all alone. All that he has is the Lord. And it's in that moment of testing that we determine that he grows in his faith as he relies on God and recognizes who God really is in the end, the Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth. As Jesus says in the opening line of the Sermon on the Mount, I like the way that the message translates Matthew 5, verse 3. It's, uh, Jesus says, You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and His rule. When our personal resources are depleted, We have to rely on God even more. In 2004, after our daughter, our first daughter was born, uh, Sarah had to leave her full-time job at Rice University so she could focus on caring for Hannah. And we were trying to make ends meet on a beginning associate pastor salary. Fortunately, my wife didn't go buy $500 dresses, so we didn't have that conversation. But still, I had no idea what it cost to have a baby. I mean, we were spending money uh, like crazy. It seemed like every week we had a different doctor's visit to pay for, and there were boxes and boxes of disposable diapers. There were all these safety gadgets you had to have for your house and for your car. There were strollers. There were new clothes. There were uh, car seats. 
We were not prepared for all the expenses that come with having a new baby. And on top of that, I had a house payment and a car payment as well. During this financially stressful time, I have to be honest with you, I was tempted to to stop giving to the church for at least a little while. And because of some of the decisions that our senior pastor at the First Presbyterian Church of Houston was making, I began to realize, you know, I'm working at a church that I probably wouldn't attend if I knew everything that I know. With some of the poor decisions that he was making, with the temptation to stop giving, I I felt like maybe this was a time to, to, to stop tithing, even though we had been tithing since we began our marriage. But as we prayed and as we turned to God's word, we felt God telling us clearly we should trust him. We should trust him with his resources that he's given to us. We began and continued to tithe. And then something remarkable happened. As a singles pastor at First Presbyterian Church of Houston, many of my singles started to get married. And I started doing their weddings. And I got paid for that. And unfortunately, I also got paid for a lot of funerals as well. I got part of that rotation. And then my wife was actually asked by Rice University to come back on a part-time basis. They really missed her, and they were hoping that she would at least come and work on Fridays, my day off. Yes, God was faithful to meet our needs as we trusted him, as we grew in our faith amidst the challenges of that time. Yes, God uses the challenges of this life to strengthen our faith. Our faith is tested and to shape our character. As I read scripture, I believe that God is much more concerned with who we become than necessarily what we do. For in Romans chapter five, verses three to five, Paul writes to the churches, house churches in Rome, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, I can't say that I always rejoice in my sufferings as Paul instructs us to do, but if I maintain an eternal perspective, I can celebrate the fact that God uses hardships to shape my character, to make me stronger and more compassionate to the needs of others. When we have to care for a sick child, or as in my case today, an aging parent, we learn to die to ourselves, do we not? And we put the needs of others before our own, just like Jesus did. When, in all of his glory, he humbled himself and became a man and took on all of our sin with his death on a cross, putting the needs of others before his own. Yes, Jesus was without sin, and so when he died on the cross, he paid the price for all of our sins together so that we might be reconciled to God once and for all. Yes, God has used suffering throughout my life to teach me a lot of things. I didn't understand the pain of rejection until my college girlfriend dumped me to date another man. That was painful. I didn't understand the challenge of cancer treatments until I saw my father go through them. I really didn't understand the deep grief and confusion of suicide until one of my groomsmen took his own life just a year ago. God uses our sufferings to shape our character, to make us more compassionate to the needs of others. I love the way that Paul explains it in 
Second Corinthians chapter one, in his first chapter to the church in Corinth, in his second letter, he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Is God allows Satan and this fallen sinful world to bring pain and affliction to our lives, we become more compassionate to those who are struggling. And so we become an instrument of God's grace after we have experienced God's faithfulness even in the midst of the storms of this life. Yes, God uses affliction to strengthen our faith to shape our character, and ultimately to grow his church. Historically, the church, as Will pointed out last week, the church has always grown the most when it is persecuted. Paul's ability to persevere and maintain his faith, despite the persecution that he experienced while he was in the region of Galatia, while he was in Philippi and while he was in Thessalonica, caught the attention of the Galatians and the Philippians and the Thessalonians. Everyone who saw Paul suffer knew that Paul sincerely believed what he was saying, that he had seen the risen Jesus, that the resurrection is a reality. As Christians, were imprisoned, beaten and crucified for their faith in Jesus during the first 300 years of the church's history, everyone began to wonder What is it about this man named Jesus that these people are willing to to die for their faith in him? As Tertullian said many years ago, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. How we endure hardship is, is a powerful testimony, a powerful witness to what we ultimately believe. If we really believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, then we don't fear affliction because we know that this temporal affliction of this world will soon pass, that one day we will be with Jesus in paradise. After all, our message is centered around the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. Jesus died on the cross for our sins as that perfect sacrifice. And then he rose again, conquering sin and death on our behalf so that we could have the assurance of eternal life if we simply believe in him. This message gives us hope despite the challenges we may face in this life. Paul knew that if the Thessalonians would simply remain faithful, God would use the afflictions they are experiencing to strengthen their faith to shape their cult, their character, and ultimately to grow Christ's church as they maintain love despite the persecution they were facing. That's why Paul prays for them in verses 12 and uh, 13 of our text. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. You can see that throughout Paul's letters, Paul believed in the return, the imminent return of Jesus, and he wanted to make sure that the character of the Thessalonians would be prepared when Christ returned, that they would reflect the holy love and sacrificial love of Jesus. Are we ready? Is our character ready for Christ's return? I know that the truth is that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. 
but we are closer to the return of Christ than Paul was. So how is God shaping our character today so that when Christ returns, we might reflect his love, we might reflect his holiness? You know, the next time we feel like Job, like very little seems to be going our way, like Paul, let's pray and remember that God uses the trials and the afflictions of this life to strengthen our faith, to shape our character, and ultimately to grow his church to the glory of his name. Please join me as we pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that you are a God who loves us so much, that you are committed to the formation of our character, that you are able in your goodness to take hard things and to turn them for good, that they might shape our character that we might grow in our faith, and ultimately that we might be an instrument of helping grow your church. Oh God, the next time we face affliction, may we take on the full armor of God. May we take the sword of truth, your word. May we pray against the enemy and the tempter. And may we turn to you for strength so that our faith might be strengthened, so that our character might be formed, and ultimately so that through our experiences, and the witness of how we handle them, we might help grow your church. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son, who is the Christ, and all God's people said, Amen. <laughs>